3, uh, verse 13 through 18 tonight. Uh, I couldn't help but thinking as I was going over this verse and working through these, these particular verses, um, how, how relevant they are and I don't think completely isolated from what he's been talking about. In the letter, he talks about the sin of partiality, uh, warning them against that. He uh, <clears throat> kind of uh, gives them counsel in regards to faith that's not obedient or working, um, not being faith at all. Even in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, he speaks to them in regards to their, uh, their speech, which as I was sharing wasn't, I don't think, so much talking about the organ of the tongue as much as the tongue is used to express the, the, the conditions of the heart. And so it was really a call uh, to, the, to them to evaluate, as it were, the inward man, to discipline the tongue, to be mindful of the dangers of that. And obviously what we would need in all of those things would be wisdom. And so that's where he picks up again. He's already spoken about that some in the beginning of the book um, when he encourages us, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And so we already know that James understands the source of this wisdom to be God. And so... Uh, with that in mind, we pick up in verse 13, and James writes this. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Uh, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there is disorder and every evil thing but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle reasonable full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace a powerful conclusion to the chapter 3 and maybe, maybe sort of a summary statement in regards to all that he's been exhorting us to. It's interesting, but just as James in the previous chapter doesn't speak, to specific, speak a specific list of works, when he's speaking of faith and works, so here again he does not delineate a, a specific list of deeds. And that, that just struck me as interesting. Uh, it did in, in the earlier chapter uh, about faith. It struck me as interesting that he really doesn't give us one work uh, to think about. He doesn't give us a list, certainly. And then here he doesn't give us the deeds, which would be a natural inclination for us to ask, especially when he says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds. And so I'm, uh, I immediately, my mind wants to say, well, what sort of deeds are you talking about? But James doesn't give us any. He doesn't give us a list of deeds. I mean, it would seem reasonable to say, let him show his wisdom and understanding by doing these things. Uh, we would have jumped onto that. We'd have made us a list and we'd have went out trying to show our wisdom and understanding by our deeds. But just like in the last chapter, uh, James goes to the heart of the matter. He goes right to the idea or he doesn't classify deeds as wise and understanding. He goes past the listing the deeds and goes to the very heart of the matter. And that's what's significant, I think, about this passage. The wise and understanding, I think, is, would be a summary statement here of his proposition, is that the wise and understanding show themselves to be such by godly, consistent lives manifesting themselves by their works or their deeds done with the wisdom of gentleness or the gentleness of wisdom. 
And so I think that's his summary statement. That's the proposition he's laying down to use his own words. Who among you is wise and understanding? That's a question to them. Let him, the one who says, I am. He says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds. Uh, let me just pause there a minute because the structure of that, kind of, you can kind of get lost in that. But what, the subject here is the deeds. Let him show his deeds. That's what he wants you to show. But there's a certain way involved in that. Let him show his deeds. But he says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds. So his good behavior is involved in his deeds. And then he says, with the gentleness of wisdom. So wisdom is involved in the doing of the deeds. He don't tell us what the deeds are. And that's interesting. He doesn't, doesn't give one single deed that they're to be doing. But he's saying, if we are wise and understanding, let us demonstrate that by good behavior, doing deeds with the gentleness of wisdom. And so he goes right to the matter of it in the very next verse. He speaks of the heart there. So we know from the scriptures that the wisdom, and we could do a, an entire series on wisdom in the scriptures, but we know this from the scripture, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Uh, the, the, I think you could say there is a fear and trembling, but generally and broadly a reverence for the Lord. Not only the Lord, his person, his holiness, uh, his, his attributes, but also his word as well. So the beginning of wisdom is a reverential fear and admiration, as it were, for the Lord and his word. And that speaks, I think, definitely to his holiness and authority and also an accountability, a realization of an accountability to that very God. And so that produces a reverence in us. You hear me say often about pride, and I heard a lot this week, um, I guess during Pride Month, that pride goes before a fall in a haughty spirit before destruction. I don't know how you can properly be reverencing God and be swelling up with pride. Because I think the recognition of God, his holiness, and the truth of his word and where that finds us in and of ourselves should, should abolish pride altogether. And so James is essentially saying in, in regards to this wisdom, that the wisdom that he's speaking of, he says later comes from above, but we know that it begins with this fear of God. And he uses the word understanding alongside of that. I don't think these are excluding one another or they're one thing or another. There's overlap. There's some bleed over of one into the other. I think wisdom will be understanding, but I think understanding is wise. So it's interesting to me that he uses that. Let him, uh, if you, who, who among you is wise and understanding. I wrote this in regards to understanding. Essentially, it is a, it is a knowledge of the word of God a personal use of it, an application in our own lives, a yielding to it, a response to it, a, a being instructed by it, set apart by it, and brought to and that word being brought to bear in every circumstance. It is knowing truth and with an appropriate comprehensive examination or an experiential application of that truth. It is an unwavering, it is unwavering but merciful. It is holding fast but not ungracious. It is confronting always but always appealing in the confrontation. So, so I think it, it encompasses this wisdom manifest itself in the way that we live our lives, in our understanding. And I use the word, and I was really meditating on this today, comprehensively. 
Not just in one aspect of life, not just in your theological studies or in your devotional time, but, it, but it's the Word of God saturating us in our re- relationship with God over time manifesting itself in the shaping of our view of everything. We look at a flower in that, in that context. We, we look at current events in the world. We look at books. We look at entertainment. We look at one another. We look at the body of Christ through the lens of the truth of God and for the glory of God. That's, that's what I think he means by understanding, wisdom and, and understanding. Who among us is like that, he asked. And then he gives us the exhortation here. Let him, the one who is like this, let him then show himself to be this. And he gives us three things here by his conduct, if you will, or his good behavior, by his deeds as well. And I think he means their deeds that would be aligning themselves with this truth of God, with this understanding and this wisdom, deeds that would be consistent with that, not just any deeds. Let him show himself by, the, by his good behavior, by his deeds, and then as well by the manner in which he does them, the gentleness of wisdom. Uh, that's an interesting phrase for me as well because he says gentleness. He could have just said with gentleness, and we could have brought, had application. We could have found biblical support for that. But he, he gives gentleness as a quality of wisdom. It's, it suggests to me that without wisdom, there can't be a gentleness Because gentleness, apart from the wisdom, will become tolerance and it'll become accommodation and it'll become weakness and it'll become wavering. So there's a wisdom underneath of this that produces in it a response or a a behavior and a doing of our deeds with a certain gentleness that finds its root in the wisdom. And I just found that fascinating this week and really instructive as well. Uh, I say that because some people by nature and disposition tend to be more gentle. I think I am, uh, since I'm not necessarily confrontational. Uh, I don't particularly like confrontation, so by nature, I can be more gentle. Uh, If you happen to be somebody who's not so gentle and likes confrontation, you'll have to be really guarded in regards to gentleness. But he's not talking about a natural disposition. He's talking about a gentleness that is born from wisdom. There is something, something to be understood in wisdom that produces a gentleness. Not just, a, not just a disposition that you might have some, from some environmental influence or some genetic wiring, but this is, a, this is a very specific kind of gentleness. And he says, who among us is wise and understanding? Let him show that. Let him demonstrate that by his good behavior through and, uh, and doing his deeds in the gentleness born of wisdom. And that's a, that's a fascinating line of study itself. If you just wanted to stop there and investigate and meditate on exactly what that means. Now, I think there's a warning, as I've said, for people who are by nature gentle. Don't assume that that gentleness is, is arising or born from wisdom. And there are those who are not so gentle and are by nature more confrontational, but yet they can't, they're not excluded from having gentleness. It'll be, if it's rooted in this wisdom, it'll produce it in you, no matter how bold you are. The, look at Peter. I mean, he was cutting people's ears off, ready to go to death with Jesus. And then, and then 
finds out there's no strength in and of himself. And later on, he comes back to the point to where there's a real humility there. Does it, does it mean that he wasn't still bold? He was at times, but I think there was a gentleness in him afterwards that was born of wisdom, of his relationship with Christ, of the word implanted. And it produces a, a gentleness. You ever met people that came out of lifestyles where aggression was the rule of the day? I've known people like that. In fact, I've known people who, who had to be aggressive to survive in the neighborhood that they lived in. But then they come to Christ and they come into relationship with Christ and they get into his word and the word becomes transformational. And the guy that once was dominant in his neighborhood is now the humble servant of Christ, giving himself over for others. That's a whiz, That's a gentleness that is born somewhere, not inherent in him. That's what I'm trying to get across. And I think sometimes we're looking for some, some natural wisdom or some natural gentleness that is not, that is not this. In fact, he distinguishes this wisdom as above and the earthly wisdom later on here. So let him show himself in this way. So in the following verses, he kind of contrasts these as well. <clears throat> so, his, so his proposition is verse 13 and part of his exhortation. So now verse 14, he, he begins a little contrast here, but without this gentleness of wisdom, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Which of you is, which of you is wise and understand him? Let him show that by this. However, if rather than this, you have bitter jealousy, one thing, and selfish ambition in your heart, don't lie against the truth. I think the truth he's talking about is certainly the truth of the word of God, but the truth of true wisdom. Even, even if you do your deeds, that was what was interesting as well. Because even when he's contrasting, he doesn't say, if you don't have this, then these will be your deeds. It's almost as if you can be doing the same deeds and one have do those with good behavior and a spirit of gentleness, a, a gentleness of wisdom, and the other could be doing the same deeds with these motivations. And they're very different. I mean, we could be doing something in the, in the general sense, a positive in the community, but we can have these two motivations. And he says later on some things about those, but think about these two, bitter jealousy. You could be doing your deeds, not for the good of another necessarily, but underneath or having in your heart some jealousy that, that you want to do more or be recognized more for the deed. And that can happen in a church setting and it can happen in the community. There is an underlying motivation that says, look, they do things and they get attention. I remember reading uh, an example of how the religious leaders would give sometimes in, in Jesus' day. And there was an understanding, there was a receptacle for their shekels and their temple offerings. And they would come in and, and the, it, was right, it had like a trumpet uh, shape at the top. And so they would lay their coins in and roll them and they'd go round and round and round to signal, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. And people would look over there and hear the noise and recognize them. They saw them giving. And then you get the contrast of the widow's mite who, who didn't have anything much at all. I'm pretty sure she didn't roll hers around and draw attention. She probably dropped it right straight in, made the littlest noise it could. So there's a, there's a way of doing a, the same deed with different motivations. Jesus commends her and says she gave out of all that she had. She gave all that she had. She, you give out of your abundance. She gives everything. 
And her gift is honored more in that context as well. So that was what was interesting to me about this particular text. Who's wise and understanding, let him show this by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. On the other hand, if you have this bitter jealousy in your heart and this selfless ambition, whatever your deeds are, they're, they're evil in that sense in regards to your own motivation. Bitter jealousy. I want, you could call it covetousness. I want what you got for doing what you did. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in, the, in the Acts in the New Testament. And everybody was selling all their property and, and bringing the entire price of the property and laying it at the apostles' feet. And Ananias and Sapphira undoubtedly recognized that these people were being acknowledged and they were doing these great things. So they go sell a piece of property and then they, and then they come and they withhold part of it and, and give part of it. And it's interesting because Peter confronts them and says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? When you bought the property, when you sold it, wasn't it all of it was yours? All the profit. None of this belonged to the church or to the apostles. You were in possession of it. But you came and if you would have wanted to offer a part of it, that would have been fine. But you offered it as though it were the whole, like the pattern everybody else was setting. And what you were was bitterly jealous. You wanted the recognition they got, but didn't want to pay the cost they paid. That's bitter jealousy. And if that's the motivation for your deed doing, whatever that is, then, the, then it is evil, he says later on. In fact, he says it's demonic. It's demonic. Not only does he mention their selfish, uh, this bitter jealousy, but selfish ambition. I want to, I want to, I want to climb the ladder. I'm going to do my deeds to, to be recognized. I've often thought it was interesting on some of the college exams. I didn't go to college, so I didn't have to do all that stuff. But I've heard students say one of the, one of the main things these colleges are looking at in the entrance exams and things are community involvement. They want to see how many uh, charitable works you're involved in. And so the kids will pile things up like that. And, and there could be an underlying motive there of selfish ambition, I want, to, I want to get to college. I want to climb the ladder. I want to be successful in the corporate world, and that's what they want. I'm not, my heart's not really in doing those things, but you can't get admitted without doing them, so I go out and do some things, get some boxes checked, and I'll be okay. If your deed doing has as its motivation selfish, that's important. I have an ambition in following Christ and doing good works. I want to someday be in the presence of Christ. Selfish ambition, this self-exaltation, if we're doing our deeds for self-exaltation in this world, they classified as evil. And they're certainly not under the category that he's already mentioned of the wise and the understanding. It's interesting that he says that if you do those things, do, do not... There by, by their doing lie against the truth. So, so to do your deeds with these motivations and to think of that as wise is a lie against the truth. It is not wise at all. It is self-promotion. It, has, it, ha, it never has the good of the, of the person that you may be ministering to ahead of its own. It always has its own good in mind. I was sharing the story recently about somebody that I I knew of that were literally, literally on a strap of leather, were cutting notches every person they led to Christ, and they would they would brag about that. And I was always stunned. I mean, it's one thing to do it. I'd be concerned about some secret pride, but for you to brag to me that you're doing it, that's an open pride. 
And I always wanted to say, and never did because I'm non-confrontational, but I always wanted to say, you're going to be feeling really funny if you get into glory and, and you show your strap to the Lord and all them notches and he looks at you and said, one of them was saved. And I did that. That's, that's selfish, self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement. Those are motivations, motivating the deed doing. That is not wise. If it's wise, it's wise in the world's eyes because it gains you ground in this world. And if that's all you want, then I suppose that's the way you should work. Notice as well in that earlier passage that is uh, his wisdom, this man's wisdom is shown by his conduct. So there's good behavior. He lives, he lives a life that is indicative of a relationship with Christ. He's not that guy in the earlier chapter that says, I got faith, but I don't have any works. This is the guy who has faith and he's obedient to the word of God and he has works. And so this guy is living by his good behavior. He's showing wisdom and understanding. And the deeds that he does are consistent with that wisdom and understanding or that good behavior. He's embraced the word himself. It's guide to his life. And it guides this deed doing. It guides what he does with his deeds. And then when he does those deeds, he does them with a gentleness that is born of wisdom and understanding. That's the contrast to this one who is doing his deeds with selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in his heart. He tells us very clearly in verse 15, this wisdom that, that he's just described in verse 14, this is not that which comes down from above. It's not that at all. It shouldn't be mistaken for that. Now the deed, does it look good? I think so. Because he doesn't delineate deeds here, it could be the very same deed and it looks good on the surface. The religious leader was putting his money in the offering and so was the widow putting her might into the offering. On the surface, the deed is good. But he says the wisdom which he's just described, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition driving you and motivating you to do the deeds that you are doing, that wisdom is not that which comes down from above. In fact, he says it's earthly, natural, and then he goes so far as to say demonic. That's really stunning there. Now, we take that lightly, selfish ambition. Well, you know, everybody's ambitious, you know. We can tolerate a little bit of that. And then everybody can be a little jealous. We can tolerate, tolerate a little of that. Maybe we do some deeds with not perfect motivation sometimes. And we, we learn to accommodate these ulterior motives in our own lives at times, sometimes. Well, James has no tolerance for that at all. He says that is not from above. That is worldly. That is of the earth. That is natural in the worst kind of sense according to the nature of fallen man. In fact, it is demonic. And that's, that means I need to be very serious about why I'm doing what I'm doing, which is always, for me personally, that's always been the crux of the matter. I mean, because I've done things, I look at a list and I say, well, Christians ought to do this, and then I would do those things, and there would be an emptiness in my heart. And I would recognize that, the doing of the thing apparently was, was not what God was driving me to do. He can get anybody to do the thing. What is he bringing about in my own heart in the doing of the thing? And it took years and sometimes still at times I'm being sanctified in the idea that why did you do it, Larry? Especially, and it makes it especially hard if somebody compliments you for doing it, right? 
I mean, it makes it because it feeds the natural man, and the natural man feels a little satisfaction, and you just go away and ignore that. If you let me just say this: if you if that's the case for you, and your natural man gets a little gratification out of it, fall on your knees somewhere or another very quickly and repent of that selfish exaltation. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is for His glory that I am to be doing the deeds that I do by His power for His name's sake. Lord, do not let me entertain and nurse anything that will feed the natural man whom you are putting to death through the Spirit in me. That's why this motivation is so important. And I think why James says that it is actually demonic. In fact, not only is it demonic, but he says in verse 16 that with this, with that motivation, there is disorder in every evil thing. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. It just speaks to me of the chaos involved in doing our works with those motivations and other self-exalting motivations. It causes chaos. One of the things I think it produces is an inconsistency because what I think may be of value to me today may change tomorrow and my deed doing changes along the way. And so you don't know if I'm going to do a good deed over here today and forget it tomorrow and do some other deed over here because it's all, it's all contingent upon what I think is up to my gain and my value today. And if you're in the natural man, that changes weekly, changes, changes generationally. 5, 10, 15, 20, 20 years, what's valued to be valuable to you at 90 is probably not what was valuable to you at 20. And if you're building your deeds around selfish motivations always and those things and not the Word of God and not those things to the glory of God, you're going to be inconsistent and all over the map. That's the disorder, part of this disorder I think he means here. And with that disorder comes every evil thing. And I'll spend the rest of my time on verse 17 tonight. But, here's the contrast. But the wisdom from above, which is the wisdom I think he's speaking of in chapter 13 and in chapter 1 as well. Excuse me, verse 13. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above, coming down from above. Let me pause there. It's not inherent in you. Uh, you don't cultivate it out of the strength of the human intellect or the human will. It's from above. It comes down. It comes to us. He's already told us in chapter 1, if any of you lacks that, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without rebuke. So he's already established that if we want this sort of wisdom, we're going to have to look outside of ourselves. You can't educate yourself into this. In fact, some of the most educated people can be the most selfish and ambitious people that you would ever meet. So you're not going to educate yourself into this kind of wisdom. You're going to have to look out, for, out from yourself. That's a, let me just say that's a sobering realization for some folks that, that that wisdom that he's speaking of here is not inherent with you. That you're going to have to look outside of yourself to the Word of God first and foremost, but by the Spirit of God to bring those truths to bear. It's not in you. You're not going to figure it out in a way that honors and glorifies God. You may figure something out that is an advantage to you, but this wisdom, you're going to have to look outwardly. And that's tough whenever you've spent all of your lives looking inwardly for the strength to get through whatever that day brings, right? We're raised, especially as Americans, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. 
We get busy. Uh, we build up. We're, we're a self-made men and self-made women. But this wisdom is not in you. It's from above. He says, gives us some qualities of this as well in verse 17. It is from above. It is first pure. Pure as compared to this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's not diluted with selfish motivations. It's not diluted with self-aggrandizement and pride and all the corruptions of the fallen man. The wisdom that comes down from above is not corrupted with all of that. If you try to drum it up yourself, you may come across some biblical principles and try to incorporate that, but it's polluted. It has selfish ambition in it. This wisdom comes down from above and it's pure. There's no defilement in it because it's based upon the truth of God and the very character of God. This wisdom is from God and God doesn't send out impurity because he cannot in his holiness. So it's first pure. You want to know if your wisdom the wisdom you're employing in your life right now is from above. Look at its purity. Who does it honor? Who does it glorify? Who does it, who does it benefit? Uh, I've thought about this often, more often than not, the wisdom of God in application, in relationships, and in life in general usually, usually means there's a cost to the old man in me. Uh, he has to lay down. He has to die. If I want him to live and have this wisdom as well, they don't blend together. I'll choose the life. I'll choose this natural life above the wisdom. I'll push that wisdom away. But if I want this wisdom and it comes down, then they, it always seems to cost me. I have to lay something that I prized in my fleshliness. I have to lay it aside almost every time because it's pure and it isn't going to mingle with impure motivations and impure motives altogether. So it's when it comes down from the Father, it is first pure, then it is peaceable. I love that, I love that word, peaceable. It's not peaceful, but it's peaceable. Uh, it gives a broader nature to the quality of it. It is not, it is not warlike. It is not, it is not immediately to inspire to take up arms. And Jesus even talks about letting your, turning the other cheek to our enemies. It's not, it's not combative. Even if it's confrontational, which I think it is, I mean, he touches on that later, even confrontation is not combative. It's not, it's not to defeat the enemy of other people so much. It is a wisdom that is peaceable. It is by, by its very nature, it is peaceable. It's not warlike. I mean, that's what Peter thought. The wisdom of his world said, take out your sword, defend your Savior. That's the worldly wisdom. It's, it's combative. It sees the opposition and, since, and seeks to silence or get rid of the opposition. But the wisdom that comes down from above is peaceable, pure and peaceable. Notice Jesus healed the servants here and he tells Peter to put his sword back away. I know how to make war, Peter. I can call 12 legions of angels if that's what I so desire. But you don't understand what, what sort of spirit you are of, Peter, because this wisdom is peaceable. And it costs Christ his life. So the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable. It is gentle, which reminds me of what he's already said in 13. There's a gentle quality about it. I think that's born in the, in the certainty of the truth of it. 
I think sometimes anxiety arises when there's, when there's an uncertainty or some instability or lack of conviction in the truth of a matter. Am I banking my life on something I'm not really sure of? Can, do I need to rush to defend it? Do I need to feel anxious if someone's attacking it? The, the, the truth, the bottom of the, tr- the truth of it, to me, is the stability of it. Therefore, that's why it can be peaceable, but it's also why it can be gentle. We don't, right theology, I think, produces a certain gentleness. As I was coming up as a Christian, and somebody would reject the gospel, and I would get irritable, and I figured if I can make a better case, they'll, they'll receive it. And then I'd get frustrated, and they'd argue back, and I'd, I'd just get all frustrated, and, and my theology was missing in that early in those early days because what I didn't understand is that how they're born again I had some things right they need to hear the gospel and I was trying to get them to the truth but I still had this idea that I could somehow convince them and the natural man could hear this see the reasonableness of it and receive Jesus and finally be saved and when they would resist that at every turn I would get frustrated and anxious and I was not gentle and it wasn't peaceable It was everything that's not mentioned here. But then when the theology, the truth got right, that men are born again by the grace of God, by His calling them out of darkness into light, when the stability of that truth came about, then I can begin to share Christ peaceably with people and with gentleness because I know that their salvation is not contingent upon what I'm doing in the moment, but what God has chosen to do through His Word. My calling is to be faithful, to preach and to teach and to communicate the truth of God's Word. You see how that brings about a gentleness or can or should bring about a peaceableness? I'm not in combat to win somebody out of the darkness. I'm not capable of doing that. All I can be at best is an instrument for God doing a work that he'll do by his own sovereignty and by his own grace. So it's gentle. Verse 17 is interesting as well. It's also reasonable. The wisdom from above is reasonable, reasoned. It's not, it's not fantasy. It's not mythology. It's not connecting a bunch of dots in sort of strange ways and coming up with some mystical feeling, ooh, moment. It is reasonable. It is truth. It is consistent with reality. Even when we're sharing that, we're not talking about some far-out deal. I shared before as an unbeliever when my mom would share Christ with me, I would press her on that. Because it seemed to me like you're saying, walk up to this precipice, look off in there, nothing there, jump. And that's the way she portrayed it. And I, to me, that was completely unreasonable. I'm worldly wisdom says, no, don't jump off cliffs that you can't see the bottom of. What my mom understood is that, that there was a Christ in the precipice to catch her when she surrendered fully to him was what she was trying to sell me. And I only understood that when I became a Christian. But the Christian wisdom from above is reasonable. It's not fantasy. It's not some far out things. I've heard some, I was listening to a documentary the other day about some of the Greek mythologies. And I'm thinking to myself... <laughs> I mean, this is just, this is bizarre. I mean, they're little kernels of truth and about human nature, but they've reasoned, they've worked out somehow in my mind, in their minds, how to, how to explain all of that. And they're doing the best the fallen man can do to think through what they look out and see in the world, but they have no answers for. 
The gospel is reasonable. The wisdom from above is reasonable. It's not fantasy like that. We're not trying to make something up to make things fit together. It is true. That's the wisdom from above. I love, especially my personally, I love the next one. It is full of mercy. Full of mercy. I think back to those early days when I was trying to share and I was harsh perhaps to a a fault and I was over anxious and I was depending so much on myself and I I never, never thought about this full of mercy. And as much mercy as I've received in the new birth, you would thought it would have come naturally to me. But it seems as though the fallen man takes mercy, uh, turns it to self-righteousness, and then condemns everyone else. The wisdom from above is merciful, full of mercy, in fact. In fact, the fact that it comes down to us, we have access to it from above, is itself a mercy. It's full of mercy. Does that mean it's not confrontational? No, because he says later on here, unwavering and without hypocrisy. So yes, in this culture, we're going to have to speak the truth. And it's not going to be received well by the world that we live in. But it ought to be full of mercy. In fact, fact, whenever we share the gospel, it is full of mercy. Even if we start with the law. Have you ever stolen anything? Yes. Well, you're condemned to hell. Without something to intervene, you're condemned to hell. That's full of mercy. Because if you feel the weight of that, you're going to cry out, well, what am I to do? And then you're wide open for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the mercy is there. It's full of mercy, this wisdom from above. Wisdom from this world has very little mercy, doesn't it? It seems to me that wisdom in this world is all built completely upon justice. You harm me, I harm you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's justice. That's the world's wisdom. You get me, I get you back. If I get you back hard enough, you dare not ever get me again. And if you don't ever get me again, I'll leave you alone. That's the world's wisdom at work. That is not full of mercy. It's usually full of self-exaltation and power and domination and oppression The wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. Good fruits. It's producing something. It doesn't bear bad fruit. Wisdom, if you say it's from above and you embrace it and it produces wickedness in your life, it's not from above. The worldly wisdom produces that. In fact, he says it's demonic and natural and of the earth. It will produce that which is accommodated and which is at home in the earth, which is evil. But the wisdom from above produces a different fruit. It is a fruit that glorifies and honors God. And I think it's a life and fruit and deeds that are consistent with the truth of God's word. That's the wisdom from above. It produces good fruits. Jesus said, you shall know the tree by its fruit. What is it producing? If it's producing good fruit, then it's, it's wisdom from above produces that good fruit. If it's producing rotten fruit or bad fruit, it's not wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is unwavering. It's eternal. Uh, it's not going to change. Uh, that's the wonderful thing. The world's wisdom changed. Look how it's changed now. I shared Sunday morning the progression of things, how, how the world's wisdom has changed. Suddenly now we think it's wise to do things that even 10 years ago we thought it would be unwise to do. And what are we going to be embracing in the next 10 years and the 20 years beyond that that don't seem very wise right now, but the world will say it's wise later on, and pragmatically it'll be the only way you can get along. It'll seem wise, but it wasn't wise yesterday, and it won't seem wise 100 years from now when we 
we reap the consequences of what we're sowing in our own generation today. It won't seem wise then. But the wisdom from above is unchanging. It is unwavering. It is, it is true in the beginning. It will be true all through the history of man. And it will be true on the other side of eternity. Because it originates with God himself with whom there is no variation. He is light. And so the wisdom from above is unwavering. And it's without hypocrisy, which kind of comes to me back to the first one, the pure. It doesn't, it doesn't contradict itself. If you, if you see, receive the wisdom from above today and tomorrow, you, you come to a conclusion that is contradictory to the wisdom that we've primarily learned from God's Word, then it's not from above. It's not wisdom from above because it's not hypocritical. It doesn't contradict itself. That's part of its unwavering and infallibility. It'll be what's true from God is true from God eternal. It's not going to change. You ever think about how, what great a comfort that is for us? That it's unchanging, it is unwavering, that it's never going to change? If I come to the sure conclusion by the Spirit and according to the truth of God, what's true today, I can, I can build my house upon that and live the rest of my life and go into my death and into eternity understanding that that was true and it'll always be true and it will, there will never be a time when this is not true. This is where I'm building my life. That's exactly what the man building his house on the rock and the sand is about. You build it on the world's wisdom and the storms come and it knocks all the props out from under you and you find yourself sinking. But if you build it upon the wisdom of God, the truth of God's word, if you build it upon that, then you're building on a solid foundation simply because it is unwavering and it is without hypocrisy. It'll always be true. You ever, I was, me and Hope were talking the other day, but we were, I think we were talking about some woman at work had said something to her about modesty uh, in regards to bathing suits and things like that. And they were they were condemning, uh, they were condemning. Uh, I think it was like a one-piece bathing suit, uh, and I'm not making a judgment here, but they were condemning a one-piece bathing suit. And and I thought to myself, <laughs> you ever watch Granny uh, Beverly Hillbillies? You ever see her swimsuit? And I said, there's another generation, and what they were, they'd see that one suit and say, what a atrocious tragedy it is! You're naked. And so one generation judges another. So, so I was just thinking, did you, did you mention to that lady, because she was condemning one and saying, well, you know, one piece is the way you ought to go. And then there was something called a tankini, I think, some kind of things. Like, and somebody was promoting, they were having this big discussion about that. I would love to have been there and said, and pulled up some picture on my phone and said, here's what they looked like in 1919. <laughs> and then they'd all, now all of you ought to be ashamed. <laughs> You're all naked, men and women. <laughs> One good thing about the wisdom of God is it is unchanging and unalterable without hypocrisy. Verse 18 to me was a, a powerful verse as well. And the seed, the seed whose fruit, sowing something, the fruit of which is righteousness, that seed is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's critical. If you're, if you're, if you're not desiring to make peace, blessed are the peacemakers. If you're not a peacemaker and if you're not sowing in this peace 
through the wisdom who comes down from above, then you're probably not sowing the seed whose fruit will be righteousness. You're sowing legalism. You're sowing condemnation. You may even gather a bunch of folks around you and follow your doctrine because they're scared to death of, 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 of hell and they are leaning in completely upon you to guide them into eternity. And so you're sowing seeds not of peace. You're not sowing those in peace and by, by anyone who's making peace. You're just sowing seeds that are producing fruit that is not ultimately going to be righteousness. It's going to be fear and oppression and bondage, even if it's to you as the one who sowed it. But the wisdom from above has a sowing the seed, the true seed that produces righteousness, and it has a sowing it in peace by those who make peace, which takes me all the way back to the, to the question in chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you, who among us, is wise and understanding? If you answer that question in your mind, I think I am. Then James says, well, then show it by your good behavior and the deeds done with this gentleness born of true wisdom. That's pretty pretty straightforward exhortation. That's how we that's how we demonstrate whether or not we are that person who is wise and with understanding. May the Lord help us uh, all to be that more so than we are if we are. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And thank you for how the truth finds us where we are. As I was reading this. Passes this week, and again earlier today, I was just struck by we go along in our day and we go along in our lives, and we, we think we've gained this ground and that ground. We feel like we've made progress, and then we read your word. And by your spirit, you bring a truth to bear, and, it's, and it just shows us exactly where we are. And my realization in those times is that, yes, you have granted growth, and Father, I'm thankful for that and humbled by it, but. There is far to go. I am nowhere near like Christ as I would desire to be and as I believe you would have me be. And I feel confident, Father, in saying the same is probably true of each of us. And so we ask for your grace. Lord, we ask that you would continue to keep us coming nearer to you. We ask that you would take the truth of your word and sow it and plant it so deeply in our heart that it changes the very way we look at the world. And when we leave this place and when we interact with others and family and friends and church members and folks out in society, Father, that we would be viewing that through the lens of Christ and the truth of your word. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Thank you for their <clears throat> commitment, their devotion to Christ and their pursuit of holiness, their pursuit of Christ. And I just pray that you would grant your blessing in our lives. Lord, keep us, keep us near to yourself, whatever the week may bring, whatever providence may allow to unfold in our lives this week. Hold us fast and keep our eyes to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.